I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 135 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prost and Andrew Frank with you here. And we're talking, Andrew, about the trailblazers, the groundbreaking cars. Yeah. The, the cars that have created or defined their sectors. I mean, there are a few really significant, really important cars that have done exactly that. I think in this episode, we might also bust a few myths. That's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, because so did. many of these cars have all the credit have taken the credit for being the cars that created their categories and actually if you go back and you look very few of them did very few of them you so think few. oh yeah that's the car that you know that, that, that was the world's first whatever mm. usually wasn't usually wasn't it's like the sort of um you know people think that uh you know the boeing 707 was the world's first commercial jetliner and transformed the face of global aviation but you know they kind of forget the the valiant uh, doomed comet um, which the British did in the 1950s and Boeing just sat there learned all the lessons and then did it properly uh, and there are so many examples in the car world of someone coming along with this really cracking idea um, but just not getting it right or not having the resources to get it the exposure it needs and you know or whatever and then someone comes along and thinks oh that's not a bad idea well we'll do that and we'll do it properly and you know they someone else does all the work and they take all the credit and often the 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 very first example of a particular breed is an obscure car isn't it that exactly lots of people won't have heard of yeah. um, but it did get there first so that's that's the ones that have created a sector what about the ones that have defined a sector i mean that's something different isn't it you don't have to be the first to like an s class for instance to define that sector that's more about longevity isn't it that's more about doing it better than anyone else, yeah. But, uh, but the thing is, is that if you are the one that is viewed to have started the sector, I mean, you know, because, I mean, those cars... Uh, well, let's just take the Golf GTI as the most obvious example. Um, yeah. Not the first hot hatch by a very, very long 
shoulders. No. We'll, I'm sure we'll come to in a minute. Um, but you know, because it was the one which you know captured the moment, you just get such a head start because by the time everyone else has gone shit, 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 um, we better do something mm. about this uh, and come up with something which probably isn't as good. And then you know, it takes time for wheels to turn and you know momentum to gather, and you know, and all the time, Volkswagen's just going golf, 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 golf. Um, usually those are the cars that i mean something like an s-class is a bit different different because you know the four-door saloons have been around for as long as there have been cars so i mean it kind of was the sector to begin with so there wasn't really a sector to create because that's what cars always were i mean certainly going back a hundred or more years um but these other sectors you know sectors which people literally just hadn't heard of before they turned up i think if you are perceived to be first to it certainly if you are the one who you know, instead of inventing it, produces the innovation that makes it successful, then you have such a head start over everybody else. I think that well, maybe maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe during the course of this podcast, we'll see examples of cars that weren't first, but still came to define their sectors. And now when you think of that sector, you think of that car before anything else. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah, that's a good point, though, about technology, pioneering a particular technology that allows a certain type of car to flourish. Yeah. Um, that's a really important point. And, you know, we've got the Mini on our list, the original Mini, um, and there are plenty of examples there of defining something, some kind of in- innovating, pioneering, some kind of technology or way of doing things that allows that type of car to become yeah. a bigger thing. Um, I don't know really really where we start, but we've got a whole bunch of them here. Let's what should start. We, what, should, what should we do? Should, should we do the golf thing as we've already mentioned it? Yeah, Golf GTI. So very often the Golf GTI is declared the original hot hatch, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and actually, what do we think is the original? The one that I've stumbled upon is the 1973 Simca 1100 Ti. We like the letters Ti around here. We do. Um, and that was a, a hot-ish hot hatch. It was a hatchback. No, it wouldn't yeah, by the hatch. standards of nearly, yeah. goodness me, nearly 50 years ago. It would have done 100 miles yeah. an hour. You know, it had a Ooh. tuned engine, uh, I think 60 to <laughs> yeah, 80 horsepower. Um, yeah. It had a hatchback. Uh, I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the other thing to mention. You know, things just ruled themselves out. I mean, we'd all be talking about, you know, the original Mini Cooper as being the original yeah. hatchback, if it had a hatchback. Um, but know, the but are, we, are, we just, are we just into semantics now? Well, it's a very, it's a very it doesn't good matter. Point. I mean, I always thought, you know, that Alpha Suds were... Um, you know, hot hatchbacks. I mean, years before, I think the Sud came out in 1971, but it didn't get a hatch until about 1982. So, you know, in, 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 you know, in that definition of hot hatchbacks, it doesn't count. Yeah. So if it does count, if we're saying, oh, it's just semantics, you know, it's, it's just a kind of style of car rather than a particular configuration, then, then it does count. Um, but there was, but, you know, even before the Simca, there was in 1971, there was the, what was it called? I've got it written down here. <laughs> Uh, the oh yeah the Auto Bianchi A112 Arbath of course yeah of course um, well there we go yeah so you know that was 1971 and that had I think Fiat 127 running gear in it but it you know it had been tweaked up I think it went from about I mean it wasn't massively powerful I think it went from about you know 45 to 55 horsepower but nevertheless it was a hatchback and it was a high performance version of that and unless we're putting you know limits on it and saying that you don't qualify unless you've got a certain amount of horsepower which I don't think we'd want to do. Mm. Um, then, you know, it may not be a car that anybody's heard of, but it's still a hot hatchback and it was still knocking about, you know, four or five years before the Golf. 
So the Golf probably, it, does it get the credit because, well, A, it's been in production uh, non-stop since 1976. So it has that longevity. It's yeah. also... But why does from it have that longevity? A, That's the question. Well, and why did the it Simcoe... It is, indeed. And the, and the, it, because, I mean, the answer to that is because it was just so bloody good. It, mm. it just... You know, again, sadly, I'm old enough to kind of remember the early days of the Golf GTI. Um, and it was just so... It, because it was mainstream, um, it wasn't a sort of quirky little thing with a name like Simca or to be... Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a big part of it, isn't it? This is Volkswagen. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is Volkswagen. But also, they just did it so bloody well. I, mean, I, can, I had one. I had a 1981 1.8. Um, so one of the later Mark 1 Golf GTIs. And I can remember I lived in a street with a with a bunch of mates in a house um, and I can remember one morning we are all going off to whatever it was we were doing and the weather had been absolutely terrible and the snow was you know deep and it was absolutely freezing and there they were um, you know trying to you know prime their chokes and their carburettors and turning the car <laughs> go, chug, 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 and they wouldn't start and, uh, and I literally I was lent in I stood on the street lent in so smug put the key in the ignition turned it and it just and that lovely fuel injected engine just went as if it had just been, yeah. you know, the warmest day in the world. It was, yeah, and it just worked. <laughs> and they were so well built. They were so durable. Um, so it was, you know, the, the idea of having a car that was that practical, um, but which was also such amazing fun to drive. It just hadn't, done, it just hadn't been done before um, in any mm. format, because we think of, you know, Porsche 911, but they weren't that practical. You can't really get anyone in the back of one of those things. But here was a car which was a genuine family car, um, with space and a boot and you know rear seats that you could use and and yet it would do like 110 miles an hour which you know in the 19 late 1970s was the sort of speed that you'd need you know a proper sports car to do or a big saloon or something and here was this reasonably affordable beautifully built you know good looking effective practical german hat. it just ticked every box yeah. it just did what had done before what had been done before but just so wildly better that it basically just blotted it all out. It just became such an enormous presence that people just forgot that. It, yeah, do you remember there was the, the Renault Five Gordini, um, yeah. which came which came before that. Beautiful car um, with those lovely you know, three star wheels and everything else. Well, you know, I mean, I suppose that led to the Renault Five GT Turbo and you know and 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 Clears and that sort of thing. But, you know, that predated the Golf GTI, but we don't think of that as being the first because it just didn't do the job as well. So I think that's what it's about. So actually, to have a legacy, a car doesn't need to be the first. It doesn't need to be the very first. It needs to be the first that nails, yes. that nails the concept, yeah. doesn't it? It needs and to be actually, the first to get it right. And actually, if you are first, whether you're an Autobianchi or de Havilland making the Comet, um, mm. the, the chances are you're not going to get it right because you're the first. Yeah. And there will be stuff, because you're blazing a trail, there'll be stuff you haven't come across before. And you either won't realise it, like tragically, de Havilland didn't realise with the comet that you get stress fractures because it had square windows. Even they've got an airplane these oh, well. days. I'm sorry, I'm going slightly at <laughs> a tangent, but um, all the aircraft have oval windows, and the comet is the reason for that. It had square windows, and they didn't realise that if you have a square window in the corners of the square, you create stress areas. And if you flex an airframe over tens of thousands um, of, of of miles or journeys or whatever you get little stress cracks in the, literally in the corners of these windows. Um, and that's what suddenly caused them to depressurise and fall out of the sky. They didn't know that at the time. 
But by the time mm-hmm. Boeing did the 707, they did know it. Um, now, obviously, in the car world, there aren't you know the consequences are are are, are really that um, that terrible or serious. But you know, there will be all sorts of things that you know in any class of car that's you know a company like you know like Volkswagen or or whoever can just look at it and think, oh, that's really interesting. But why did they do it that way? Wouldn't it be better if we did it this way? Mm. But you mm. you can only do that if someone else has had to go first. So actually, in many cases, being second is a huge yes, advantage. Absolutely. Forget first mover advantage. You want to be yeah. second. But I yeah. wonder if we've got examples of. Actually, we will have examples of the first being the uh, the one that endured. That, there are examples of those, and I'm sure we'll come onto them. So Go we've on. done the hot hatch, and the Golf GTR was not the first hot hatch. But what was the first true people's car? How far back do we have to go? Are we? What do you I mean, mean by people's car? So what mobilised the masses more than anything? And I, I don't Mod- know if the Model, Model T... Model T Ford. Well, in America it did. Was that the masses or was that a middle class car? Uh, so workers car, well, you know, yeah, like, a, well, like a 2CV. Well, I mean, over here, the Austin 7, um, mm. certainly, in the mid-1920s. I mean, that came along. Um, uh, and again, you know, there were plenty of cars that you could buy even then which had that configuration but none which worked quite so well none which was quite so affordable um and also you know it looked really cute um and you know they and, and they just worked and they just captured the moment and you know they they, they like cashed in ever forever after so i guess over here i don't know about the model t i don't i, I don't know enough i mean it was in production for an absolutely enormous period of time um and it probably wasn't when it first came out um a sort of true car mm. of the people i don't know but i think but over time as it got older and they and, and and you get they got into the economies of scale and they made millions and they realized just what they were onto i suspect it probably did um mm. and he's gonna have a look okay so well austin 7 that's a good shout particularly for the uk um but there were others weren't there two cv even the beetle but that's much later on um, exactly. Okay, let's so let's think about the Land Rover, original Land Rover. Yeah. Um, long before it was the Series One, when it was just the Land Rover. Yeah. But d- is that did that start the four by four sector, the rugged four by four market, or was it the Willys Jeep that got there first? Well, the Jeep was there first. I mean, the Jeep came out. I mean, the thing about the Jeep and the Land Rover is n- neither of them were what turned into what they were ever intended to be originally. So the Willys Jeep, obviously, mm. was a purely military vehicle, um, first produced in 1941 um, for military purposes, and, but it created this sub-brand Jeep. Um, you know, I've just been on a Zoom call with Jeep, talking about its first ever all-electric um, product, the Avenger, which is going to go on sale in the UK next summer. Um, and I think the phrase is, it's been on a bit of a journey in that time so then that car certainly wasn't what you know that they intended it to be and the land rover i mean the land rover is what is so amazing about the land rover is it it was a stopgap they saw this and they Mm. thought all right there's a real opportunity um to do a a farmer's car really but a car which could be used for various other purposes um and we're gonna have a big long think about that but in the meantime why don't we just knock something out really really cheaply so we'll have a presence in the market i mean that's why you know it doesn't have you know why all its panels are straight 
because there wasn't it wasn't going to be around long enough to make it worthwhile to tooling up you know expensive machines that could do curves and that sort of thing it was made out of aluminium not because it was light or anything else but after the war that's what was most plentiful you know all those um military machines being scrapped aluminium was everywhere and steel was scarce um and it was just a stopgap and so they just you know thought well we'll just stick that on the market and then we'll do the proper car (laughs) so do you off the top of your head was the willys jeep or the jeep made commercially available before the land rover i think it was was it purely yeah Yeah. so okay so the jeep probably does deserve the credit there yeah for being the first in that sector. Yeah. Um, yes. But see, yeah, the Land Rover. It's such an interesting story. We did actually record a podcast specifically about the Land Rover a while ago, didn't we? Um, well, it looking, was... Looking at the history of that car. What, was it after there? It wasn't our first podcast, was it? No, was we did the, it relatively the... recently. Yeah. We did do it relatively recently. Um, so while we're on it, while we're talking Land Rovers versus Jeeps... Oh, yes. Um, I know where you're going what, with this. What about, <laughs> yeah, what about the sort of more upmarket SUV? Yeah, well, it's the Range Rover's the first luxury SUV, isn't it? No, no it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Jeep Wagoneer? Jeep Wagoneer. Um, Jeep Super Wagoneer, I think you'll find. Oh, well, Super yeah, Wagoneer. Okay. So there was the Wagoneer in 62, but the, but, but the really, the posh one was a thing called the Super okay. Wagoneer, which I think came out in 66. Um, uh, okay. But whichever one you choose, they both predate the Range Rover. Um, it's yeah. when on sale in 70. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I don't think they were ever sold over here. Um, and you know, and, and maybe it's actually maybe this is quite a UK centric or Euro centric. I mean, maybe if we, I mean, you know, maybe somebody who listens to this in the US thinks, hang on, the Range Rover was never the first luxury SUV. Uh, you know, we did it long before. Yeah, maybe over there the perception is completely different. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, Range Rover just has this. You know, it, it created this entire. Um, category of cars the luxury and we and we just think you know it's almost a class in its own right isn't it it's almost like the range rover class and it certainly was for a long time um but it certainly wasn't the first to to do that job i mean and again none of this is intended to in any way um run down any of these cars because i think an original range rover is a phenomenal piece of work i think it is so cleverly conceived um and they understood the brief so well but maybe they understood the brief so well because somebody else had already had a crack at it Mm. good point i I think the thing about these cars that did or didn't create their sectors is that in the best cases years later they just seem bleedingly obvious don't they and you know an upmarket luxury four by four actually now seems bleeding obvious. But way back it in does. the 60s, it wasn't, it wasn't clear. Yeah, or hot hatch. Yeah, of course. An affordable, sporty, but practical car that I, you can use every day. It seems why obvious. Wouldn't, why wouldn't that be a good idea? Yeah. But, but it, it but took it, someone with that insight, because it's not it, back then it wasn't immediately obvious that people would bother no. paying extra money for a, you know, a slightly hotted up hatchback. Um, no, and, and the Range Rover in particular, you think about that, you know, if you think about, you know, the ladder chassis and the live axles and all the things which made it good off-road, um, and someone coming along thinking, well, we could take those things and somehow uh, use them to a completely different purpose, a purpose to which they would appear to be diametrically opposed, 
but do it so well that you create an entire new category of car. Um, yeah, I just think it's because it would have been, it would have been well, it might have been not been easier. It would have certainly been more expensive. But the, the natural thing to have done back then, you know, even the nineteen seventies would have been to create, you know, a car with a monocoque chassis and um, conventional suspension, and just to you know, apologise for the fact that it wasn't great off road, um, but at least it had you know four wheel mm-hmm. drive and a bit of gland gra- 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 clearance. Didn't do that. They stayed mm. true to their roots. They made it an off-roader first and a luxury car second and have crashed in ever since. Yeah, there is ingenuity in this, dreaming something up from nothing and then and then bringing it to market successfully and yes. convincing people that they need one. Yes. And that, that's actually as difficult as any of it, isn't it? Well, can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can we go to another category of car which makes this point extremely well? First... Um, the first mid-engined supercar. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Now, yeah. First mid-engined supercar ever to go for a Lamborghini Mirror. You know, 1966. Again, it, it just wasn't. But I mean, who? I'm going to be having to look at. I'm even going to have to look over here because I'm just trying to remember what the actual name. Is it the Rene Bonnet de Jet. Yeah, the Jet. Yeah. Apparently, he put the D in front because he knew that French speakers and other Romantic speak- language speakers would, would call it a yet. So, how do you pronounce so, it then? Jet. Jet. So the I D is I just read this. I, yeah. Well, yeah. So I've, I've, you know, I read this at some point. I can't remember so, when. But so, should I be feeling a bit of a chump for just calling it a de jet? Well, it does. It is spelled the jet. So, no, I don't think so. But apparently, it is it is just jet because he didn't want people saying yet. Him um, being Rene Bonnet, enough. not presumably not Rene yeah. Bonnet. Well, <laughs> Bonnet jet. I mean, there we go. R- yeah, rather was... boringly, this car became a Matra, didn't it? Yeah. So this is 1962. So it did predate the Mira by four years. Four years. But, predate the... yeah. but was it a supercar? It was a mid-engine car. It was a mid-engine road car. Yeah. Forget the word supercar. Yeah, yeah. You know. Okay. So it was still the first mid-engine road car. And um, yeah, the specification. Wishbones all round, disc brakes all round, 1962. 700 kilos? That's pretty amazing, I mean, isn't it? I just want to drive one. I mean, yeah. it might have been rubbish, I don't know, but um, I mean, on paper, I mean, your 1962 mid engine car, double wishbones yeah. all round, disc brakes, 700 kilos. It must have been amazing. So I suppose the Mura does have a case that it was the first mid engine supercar. Um, because I think the jet was, you know, it wasn't enormously powerful, was it? So maybe it's better defined as a sports car. Yeah, but even so, but you also, know, it's 64, the Tommaso Vallelonga. Okay. That predates the Mura. And that was a supercar. Uh-huh. Okay, well, it go. wasn't in production for very long, and, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> but, never, I mean, that's, that, that's not, what judging, not what we're judging here, is it? But this is, this, it feeds into what we were saying earlier, wasn't it? it you don't have to be first to be the one who makes a success of it. And Lamborghini maybe benefited from seeing what others had done. Um, And, I mean, the Mura. Yeah, it's actually, it's extraordinary what Lamborghini did with the Mura. Um, Given the resources. And I I, I think it also shows, it just shows foresight. Because just because someone's done it before, you know, Lamborghini could just as easily have looked at the Rene Bonnet jet and probably even the Vallelunga and just gone, well, they didn't work. Why would I do something like yeah. that? Yeah? Yeah. But he didn't do that. He just saw, mm. well, racing cars have gone that way. Mm. That's 
that's the you know and whereas ferrari were always so slow to respond to anything um you know i think lamborghini just saw that that's the way um the river was flowing and thought well you know we can either just you know wait and wait and wait but you know he had a new company didn't he he had to do something you know, ferrari was so well established um yeah. and his first car you know, had been well received, but it wasn't beautiful and it didn't exactly set the world on fire. And he needed something which would make people sit up and notice. Um, and, you know, he took a very brave decision because previous attempts, as discussed, hadn't worked. Um, and, you know, basically secured the future of his company. Actually, it's a very good point. You, you could just dismiss an idea if it hadn't worked before and not, not think about it again. Yeah. So it does take some insight to clock to recognize that little kernel of potential yeah and think oh, I'm, I'm i can i can i can make this work even though others haven't done before yeah um and i and, and i think that there is some relevance to the present day i mean you and i have both now driven the new gt3 rs 911 and i i have thought for a long time you know what's going to be the next great area of development in road cars because there's not really much point in giving them any more power and you know and 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 their chassis are so good but but aero just seemed to be you know a completely neglected area people just didn't you know and and okay there have been some incredibly esoteric cars like you know mclaren p1s and senna's and that sort of thing which have which have tried to do this and i'm not saying for a moment that gt3 rs is mainstream but it's a sight more mainstream than you know than a senna um or a p1 and i think that's where the world is going to go where the sort of you know the top end sports car world is going to go you're going to suddenly find things with huge amounts of downforce um because you know they give they're what that's what gives you the nurburgring lap time that's what gives you a really dramatic um appearance and i suspect compared to any other route you go it's probably not that expensive to do because you're just adding stuff onto what's already there um, and it doesn't require a huge number of moving parts and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that Porsche have suddenly recognised that that's going to be the next... And it'd be very interesting to see, you know, what other manufacturers do. But I suspect that Aero is going to be, you know, the next big thing among sporting car manufacturers. And we'll see cars with ever more of the stuff. And, you know, that's the way it's going to go. But, you know, it's, it's exactly the same with what Lamborghini was doing in the 60s, where they suddenly realised that the future of, you know, the top-end sports car was mid-engined. Mm. And they just reacted first to it. And it's interesting that with this latest GT3 RS, Porsche has, what, close to doubled aerodynamic downforce over the previous car, just by... And actually, if you look at them side by side, they both look like they've got enormous rear wings, lots of vents and flicks all over the place. You wouldn't necessarily know, would you? Um, but, yeah, so maybe maybe downforce is what manufacturers are going to be bragging about on their sports cars from now. And, and, and also, the other thing it does is the, is the configurability. You know, just be able, just being able yeah. to sit there and uh, you know set your your diff settings <laughs> and your and your damper, so your rebound and your bump and all that stuff, which is which I think for most people is just I don't think that ninety nine percent of people will even bother with it. Um, but it doesn't matter, does it? Because it's like you know ninety nine percent of people never drive their car at their top speed. It doesn't matter that you don't mm. do it. It's that you know that it can or it that you can, could if yeah. you wanted to. And that's what it's all about. And so you're going to, you are going to see people responding to that, and there will be absolutely ridiculous levels of configurability, which is you know, which you can just sit there and just go on the dashboard because, mm. again, I don't think it's very expensive to do, um, and allows people to go, 
you know, oh, look, I've just, you know, been able to, you know, <laughs> add another click of rebound on the rear right. And that means my car's going to feel exactly the same. No, they don't say that. But um, <laughs> I tried to shed a little bit of light on all that, the GTRS's configurability with a story. It's on the app and website now and a video that you can find on the app and website and on YouTube, if you like. Um, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. Uh, okay, so let's, you've mentioned McLaren. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of hypercars. Yeah. So obviously, as we all know, the first hypercar was the McLaren F1, wasn't it? <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> Hmm. maybe well, not then well I mean it wasn't even the first carbon road car you know that's another claim that the McLaren has it's the first first road car with a carbon tub I mean this is a bit of a cheat is I don't right? think it is actually Jaguar mm. XJR15 okay so yeah a racing car made road legal more or less they had a number of plates you know, it wasn't <laughs> like a one off you know there were road yeah. cars it was sold as a road car it had a carbon tub now, you may say there are only, I don't know how many, but maybe there are only 15 of them, but there are only 64 McLaren F1s. So, mm. Yeah, so why you know, should the F1 get that credit? So why should the F1 get that credit? Well, probably because it was fully homologated and everything else, I don't know. Yeah, but. okay. But forgetting, um, and, and it was designed as a road car first, I suppose, and yeah. forgetting the carbon fibre thing, I mean, it, was, it probably wasn't the first hypercar, was it? I mean, it did do certain things. It elevated performance, particularly top speed, to a level far beyond what was what was it's offered a, before. I, I've said this before. It's expanded. It, it expanded the the, the envelope yeah. road car performance by a greater margin than any car before or since, and that is its yeah. legacy. Um, it was mm. nothing took a greater step, but it wasn't okay. The first hypercar. I mean, you know, I would argue. I mean, what what is a hypercar? I mean, it can't you, you can't define it by power or speed because obviously these things change over time. So a hypercar is to me. An out-and-out sports car, uh, which possesses more performance than anything else um, around at that time, made in incredibly small numbers and sold for a very high price. All of mm. which, uh, but also to a, using to, to some extent using new technology, innovative and materials, processes, new technology. Yeah, and yeah. the latest engineering. Yeah, that's got yeah. to be a part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, All of which describes the, the, the Ferrari two eight eight GTO. Yeah, it does. And actually, Gavin Green wrote a piece for us recently, didn't he? And again, yeah. it's on the TI app and website now, making the case for the 288 GTO being the original hypercar. And it's a compelling case. Um, but, you know, this is well beyond my area of expertise, but I'm sure there'd be people out there who could make a good case for there being pre-war stuff that fits into that category. Um, but then it becomes very tricky to what's a supercar, what's a hypercar. Yeah. It just becomes but, such a grey area, yeah, doesn't it? It, it is, and, and, and we shouldn't get bogged down in the semantics of it. You know, the thing is, is that you don't need a fixed definition from which there can be no variance, because there will always be exceptions, and there will always yeah. be grey areas. All that matters is that we know it and we see it. Mm. Um, and mm. if I say to you, hypercar, you know, you're not thinking of a Ford Fiesta. You know exactly what I'm referring to. So does everybody else. Um mm. But it's I think those components that you talk about, or you know, that we're discussing, you know, the the new level of performance, the use of you know previously untried technologies in that particular area, uh, high price, low volume, all that sort of thing. There are all components of it, certainly. So lots of the cars we've spoken about already have 
stolen the credit for being the first of their type when actually they weren't really. Yeah. Um, they were maybe just the first that made a success of it. But I think the Renault Espace probably is a good example of uh, a car that is considered the first of its type and is. Ooh. Oh, I'm going to have to look <laughs> it up. I don't think it was. Really? I think that there was a Chrysler minivan in the US. Yeah, okay. Are they different? I suppose they're not really. Well, no, actually, they... actually, no, no, because actually, you know, th- something like a an original Fiat Multipler, um, you know, that was, you know, that had six seats, uh, you know, 600cc engine, but it had six seats. I mean, there were... There were... Original Fiat Multipler. I'm going to have to look this up now. That is a bizarre looking thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It looks like a big bubble car. Well, I think that's almost mm. exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I'm oh, going to okay. come up with another. I'm, I'm going to come up with another in a minute, which is going to absolutely, and you're going to have to look that up too, and people are going to get really cheesed off with us. Well, well, um, look up a 1936 Stout Scarab. That's the first MPV. 1936 Stout Scarab. So did that go on sale though? Really? Yeah, it did. It went on sale. That was on sale. It wasn't the Renault. That is an Spurs. extraordinary looking car. So, if you're in the, in the highly likely event you're only listening to this rather than watching it, um, when you get home or out the bath or whatever it is you're doing, go and have a look at the 1936 Stout Scarab and, and then tell us it wasn't the first MPV. Ah, oh, there's nothing sacred. Okay, so the Espace. But it, the Espace did do something, though. What did it's it been do? Been by, it scout, did by it... the Stout Scarab by nearly half a century. <laughs> yeah, half a century. Okay, fine. But the Espace, um, it, maybe it took the MPV thing mainstream. Um, it's interesting, yeah. Do you know what? I always assumed the Espace was the first MPV, but clearly it wasn't. Okay. Was, was the Avon team the first two-door MPV? Well, first and the first, last. The first and last. That was a, a sector, a genre that nobody was asking for, wasn't it? Well, exactly. So that doesn't um, actually count because we're talking about sector-defining cars. And if you don't have a sector yeah. because you're the only car in it, yeah. um, then you automatically disqualify yourself. Do we um, need to talk about the original Mini? What was it? What was it first at? Or what is it? What is it known to be first at? It wasn't by a mile the first front-wheel drive car. You know, I own a no. front-wheel drive car that's older than a Mini. Um, it wasn't the first truly compact runabout because there were bubble cars. I mean, the Fiat Five Hundred predates yeah. the Mini. Um, I, I think it was the. I think. Okay, I think what you could say was it was the first to really perfect front-wheel drive. Mm. Um, you know, front-wheel drive cars, I mean, people forget, if they ever knew, there's an Alvis came sixth at Le Mans in 1928 with front-wheel drive. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. Okay. <laughs> so people go, oh, yes, the Traction Avon was the first front-wheel drive car. Oh, it wasn't. Mm. So there was an Alvis in the 1920s that they were doing it. But the, again, and, and, you know, and that wasn't just a racing car. You know, they, they didn't make many, but they made about 150 of them i think so it's you know it's it's a proper it's a proper thing they're still knocking about today mm-hmm. um i've completely forgotten what your question was oh the mini well no okay, okay. okay. So, so, but, the, the, sorry i was just making the point about front wheel drive i think what you can say about the mini and again i might be wrong but this is my understanding it was the first one that really made front wheel drive work you go and drive my 2cv as you will shortly because we've got a <laughs> we got a plan for that car. We got, we, we, we got the most ridiculous twin test that's ever come up with. Um, 
plan for the next few weeks involving my 2CV and something else. Um, what you'll notice is that because it's got union uh, universal joints um, at the front, when it goes around the corner, the tighter the corner, the more the steering tugs you. It tugs and it tugs and it tugs. Um, and Alec Isigonis wasn't going to put up with that. And so the constant velocity joint was developed. Um, yeah. And it was the perfection, the perfecting of the CV joint um, in the Mini, which basically made, which took away the disadvantage of front-wheel drive and perfected it. And then after that, I think it was because of the massive packaging advantages. Because if you remember, you know, most small cars before that, you know, everything from you know, the Fiat 500 to the Beetle, they're all rear-engine, rear-drive, because that was the only way that you could, you know, get enough space inside a car for people. And that was fraught with all sorts of problems, handling problems, crash problems, all those sorts of things. But Isigonis' genius of perfecting front-wheel drive and then putting the radiator down the side of the car rather than having it slung out in front created this packaging miracle. Um, so it was the first to do that. But it's, you know, it's, you have to... Yeah, I think anything you have to sort of explain in that kind of detail almost sort of disqualifies mm. it you know but yeah first to perfect front wheel drive so it's an, it, yeah so it's another good example of it wasn't the first car of its type it wasn't the first mover in a sector no. but it got it right and actually that basically describes almost all the cars we've been speaking about even the espas i suppose it it was the first that got it right and made a yeah. commercial success of it um so first, first in, so, in so many cases it's an obscure car that yeah. the vast majority of us have never heard of yeah um and maybe that's just how things work in the car sector okay can i talk um, about one car which was first to two things and hasn't had the credit for either jensen ff uh yes yeah so hang on four-wheel drive and abs correct yeah audi yeah. quattro is first people, four-wheel people. drive sports sports car no. No, no 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 not even close not even close Jensen FF did mm. it in 1966. Um, the, what was it, the W116S class, about 1978, first car with um, anti-lock brakes. Again, no. Uh, I haven't driven an FF. If anybody listening to this knows someone who has one, I would love to drive, because I just want to see what, I mean, I think it was a, re- I think the ABS was a really clunk, it was Maxaret, they called it. It was a really clunky system, and I think it worked. And I, again, I'm old enough to remember the days of mechanical ABS, where essentially it wasn't an electronic system which detected um basically it almost required a wheel to lock which would then shut a valve which would then release the release mm. the pressure and allow it to roll again so it was basically i mean i imagine it would have been um it would have just you know it would effectively allow the tire to get lock unlock lock unlock you know plenty of times but it would have been i imagine quite um limited in its function but it was you know anti-lock braking i'm just beginning to think now that you don't in the car sector at least you do not want to be the first mover because no. there are very few examples of the first in a category then going on to get the cred and have all the glory and the success very few um although here's one um and you know we're getting recent now and there are examples from the more recent times um in the car sector because the technology is evolving quickly at the moment so the first mass produced hybrid vehicle 1997. Oh, but the, the Prius. It, it's the obvious one, yeah, the Prius. Yeah. So it yeah. beat the Honda Insight by a couple of years. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And okay. even now, the, the Prius is recognised as being the original yeah. hybrid, isn't it? So that's yeah, an example absolutely. of... Okay, so, that, okay, so that's, that's a real exception. Um, yeah. First turbocharged car. Um, was it the Oldsmobile? Very good. Because that's not what mm. people think it is. People think it was... There's always this sort of coin toss between was it the 2002 yeah. turbo BMW or was it the 911 turbo? Because both mm. appeared... I don't think either went on sale, but both appeared in 1973. Um... And of course, neither was the case. The Oldsmobile Jetfire, yeah. um, and I think there was there was there also a Chevrolet um, equivalent of it. I think there was, but anyway, um, ten years earlier, I think sixty two, sixty three, um, had a. I mean, turbocharging had been around. Um, it had been used in aircraft. Um, a one of my great um, automotive trivia facts is that pole position for the Indy 500 was taken in 1952 <laughs> by a car that was not only turbocharged but powered by diesel huh. um yeah cummins diesel engine <laughs> um got pole position um so uh, but anyway so yeah so, so the jet fire was it had a three and a half liter engine at about 215 horsepower which was which was punching in 1962 um my yeah, understanding plenty. for the reason it didn't work is it required to, it required a strange brew of stuff. Uh, it had to run on not just petrol, but they had to stick. I think they had to stick distilled water in it and something else as well. Something maybe something like ether or ethanol or something like that. Um, and people just couldn't be bothered, um, and so it died. Yeah. And it took another ten years for. Well, go on. Well, no. So there's an example then of trying to embrace the technology too soon before it was ready, and the Germans didn't do it until it was ready and it could be used reliably and effectively yeah. and easily. Yeah. Um, and away they went. Okay, what was the first car to make EV aspirational? EV aspirational? Well, it certainly mm. wasn't the Nissan Leaf. Um, I suppose not the Tesla Roadster. Um, first car, well, it depends. What, I mean, again, aspirational is just one of those sort of I mean, terms that anyone could describe in any number of different yeah, ways. it's not so, very definite, you know, is it? Um, Taycan? Tesla Model S, surely. Tesla Model S, yeah, okay. Two, yeah. 2009. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, you're right. Yes, you're absolutely right. So that's, yeah, that's a bit like the, the Prius, isn't it? It's It got there first and actually took the credit for Except it. Except the Prius was a something. It was the first hybrid car. You know, you could point to components. And aspirational, it's a much yeah. more ephemeral concept, isn't it? What about the first electric hypercar? So very up-to-date now. And I think it was the Rimac Concept 1. I don't think anyone anything else on the no, road. Well, uh, no, I think... it, that's true, but they built eight, eight of them. Um, so it's super low volume, but they were out there and they sold them to customers. Um, what's curious now, and it, it did spark a sector because there are now several electric hypercars on the market. Um, the, the Nevera. Uh, from Remac, which was on Toggy yeah. the other day, wasn't it? The, the Batista, the Pininfarina, Batista, the Lotus Avaya. Um, yeah. What's curious about these is that nobody has triumphantly declared their limited run of electric hypercars all sold out yet, have they? <laughs> no. And you know they would. You yeah, know they, they could, would. They would. They would be shouting it from the treetops. Um, and so the only thing you can conclude from that is that they haven't sold out. Um, mm. And, yeah, I mean, I, I remain very, what's the word, 
I don't think I, I, I remain to be convinced that okay, I mean, we mustn't go on too long about electric hypercars because you know to an extent who cares. But um, I just don't think that those sorts of cars are going to capture the emotions in the way that you know what Aston Martin are doing or Gordon Murray is doing or or, or any of the other hypercars that we know because you know there ha- to me there has to be an emotional connection with those cars because just the fact that they're really fast just just isn't enough. Um, mm. but maybe I'm wrong I actually think they'll find an audience among a, a different group of people I think maybe. it'll be tech people um, people who actually are not interested in conventional supercars or hypercars but because it's electric because it's because of the technology involved they find it interesting I think that's how they will find their audience if indeed they do um, so I think we've dispelled a few myths there maybe I, I've learned a few things you know notably the Espace so I was convinced that was the first MPV but actually when you look back you, yeah the, what was it the Scarab that is the, the, the Stout Scarab or was it the Scarab Stout no it was the Stout Scarab yeah you can't say that's not an MPV um so what have we learned then? You don't want to be the first mover. No, absolutely not. You know, um, to come first, come second. That is the truth of it, isn't it? To, rem- to be remembered as the first, make sure you're the second. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that's what we need, we need to do. We need to look at who's trying to pioneer an interesting new technology and then just get their second. Yeah, and wait for them to completely stuff it up and then pounce. Yeah. And make sure it has oval windows rather than square windows. Yes, um, exactly. Got to read a question for me. We've got a, it's a listener question. Um, and listener. yeah, that yeah. is coming up. Uh, before we do that, thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast. It's important that you keep doing that because that's how we find a new audience. Also, most of you will not be subscribed to the podcast um, wherever you listen to it, whether that's the Apple app or Spotify. So please hit the subscribe or follow button. Um, and that just helps to it helps us find a bigger audience basically so do it it takes a moment of your time and it really makes a difference um so the listener question and i'm afraid i've screenshotted this question and managed to crop out the name of the person asking it so i'm afraid i don't have your name but hopefully you'll recognize the question which car company executive do you think has had the biggest impact on the industry or the company they have worked for um these are the titans of the industry that we're thinking about. And I think we can ignore the founders because obviously it's Oh, God. Henry so, Ford. So, so, we, so we can't have can't Benzo <laughs> or Henry Ford? No, we can't. We can't have Ferruccio. Um, but who are the executives, the, the suits, the bosses who have really left the mark or turned around their companies? And I think some have actually legitimately saved their companies, like Carlos Ghosn, saving Nissan. Tavares, yeah, and yeah. creating new alliances, particularly in the case of Goen, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi. But what about the likes of Ferdinand Pieck, who well, yeah, absolutely. left his mark on Volkswagen? Yeah. Unlike, I mean, he, and he was an engineer rather than an executive, really, yeah. wasn't he? He certainly was. First. Well, he, he was poached on Goen. I mean, Luca. I mean, if you look at yeah. what Luca did for the Ferrari Formula One team in the 1970s and then the basket case he inherited when he came back. Um, in the early 1990s and what he turned that company into um, you know, De Montezemolo is the bloke I mean I just I just love the bloke I just think he is such an impressive admirable clear-sighted properly motivated um, bloke um, he's, he's probably certainly of the sort of car brands that I know about um, and are close to my heart you know I think he's the person who just 
understood what was going wrong um, and just and just turned a company that was living on its laurels had become complacent and arrogant and just turned it into you know we all go on today don't we about how amazingly well Ferraris are engineered um, mm. but that culture of excellence actually was instilled by Luca because the, you know the cars that came before his time I mean you know the cars of the 50s and the 60s they were wonderful cars um in their own way uh they looked beautiful and they were you know they had amazing engines and they went faster than anything else but they didn't have that across the board um just those incredible standards and and and, and luca did that so so for me it would be him there must be some designers as well who have done an enormous amount to turn around the fortunes of the company they've been employed by um i think even our mate ian callum deserves credit there yeah, Ian Callum and Julian Thompson, you know, two of our contributors. You know, look what yeah. um, Ian did first for um, first for Aston Martin and then for Jaguar. Mm. And you look at, you know, what Julian did for Lotus. Um, and although, you know, somebody else took the credit, um, you know, when <laughs> when he designed the LRX, the Land Rover LRX, which got turned into the Evoque, he created a design language for Land Rover and therefore Range Rover, um, which is dining out on to this day. I mm. mean, you know, these are absolutely game-changing designs by game-changing you know i don't mean that you know they were among the prettiest cars of their time they changed the fortunes of their companies you know where would lotus be without the elise where would range rover be without the evoke and that's right and particularly in the case of aston martin the db7 you see you you can recognize that as an aston martin even now you and you see in say the current dbs superleggera how that has evolved from Mm the basic design language of the DB7. It's really significant, isn't it? Yeah. Um, thank you for your question. I'm sorry I didn't make a note of your name, but appreciate your question. Um, and do get your listener questions across. So you can email us, info at the-intercooler.com or send us a message on Twitter or Instagram. I do see them. Um, and we'll end next week's podcast with a note.